I'd like to speak tonight about the end of suffering. We've talked before about the kind of suffering that is conventionally understood as being painful. We've talked a little bit about how we can transform it through moral action and through generosity and transforming our spirit. We've talked about effects of loving kindness and compassion, having that exquisitely sensitive sense of conscience, shrinking back from harming ourselves or harming others. Through all of these means, the worst kinds of pain are avoided or overcome, and the seeds for happiness in the future are planted. We've also talked about the kind of sorrow or uneasiness or suffering that comes through change, having a pleasant feeling come and then having it go away, having a good thing happen, watching it disappear. We've talked about finding release from this suffering by learning to let go, not to be attached or to cling, to be able to bear with vicissitudes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and so on. What I want to talk about tonight is that third kind of suffering, which we call Sankara Dukkha, and the end of it, which is Nibbana. This type of suffering or uneasiness has a deeper dimension to it than the other two that I just talked about. What it points to is the unsatisfactoriness or the radical inadequacy of everything that is in conditioned existence. It refers to the incessant impermanence, constant, constant coming and going of everything we can know with the body or the mind. And therefore, the unreliability, the insecurity that's inherent in all of that. It also refers to the sense of, some of you have described this, of impingement. This constant array of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and thoughts somehow pressing in, creating a kind of friction for us in our consciousness as we get more sensitive. It's almost a sense of bombardment in some way. And finally, it refers to the fact that nothing can stand alone. Nothing can have a completely independent existence in our world of knowing an object. It's a very subtle sense of unease or dissatisfaction said in the teachings that only fully enlightened beings can truly understand it completely. So while we may not be able to understand it fully, it is this embryonic understanding and the stirrings of it that can define for us our sense of what is really possible in spiritual practice, our sense of what can actually be the outcome of spiritual practice. In the end, we practice not just to have an ability to be a little bit calmer in our lives and to live in a more harmonious way, although that's very wonderful. And in the end, we don't practice just for a sense of self-acceptance or for greater compassion as we relate to others, though that is also wonderful. In the end, we practice for this moment, this touching of the unconditioned of perfect freedom, or Nibbana. 
even if you don't want it, even if this does not interest you at all, you should know that this is possible, that this is possible for each of you, for each of us, as human beings, walking a spiritual path. In Pali, there's an interesting and somewhat subtle distinction that's made between three words, one of which is translated into English as achieve, another is translated as experience, and the third is translated as the word touch. So that we can experience a sensual object, a sight or sound or taste. We can achieve or attain a high degree of concentration or some fantastic meditative experience. But we can only touch Nibbana. We cannot achieve it, we cannot attain it, we cannot experience it in the way we experience a sound or a sight. We can only touch it, even though we use these three words interchangeably in a conventional way. Do you get a different sense of these? What does it feel like inside of you when you think about achieving something or attaining something? there is the beginning of some kind of striving, of leaning forward, trying to hold on, or trying to get. When we think about experiencing something, there's usually a dualistic energy. There's the knowing and the object. We can only touch Nibbana. It's not a matter of straining forward, trying to get or trying to have. It's a matter of being fully present. This word nibbana has two meanings. In one sense of it, it means that we relate to whatever experience is happening in this very moment without grasping and without aversion and without delusion. The Buddha himself taught this in effect that every moment of mindfulness, which is consciousness free of greed, hatred, and delusion, every moment of mindfulness is a moment of nibbana. It's a moment of perfect freedom. If we really believed this, then we would understand that whatever experience we are having, it is all right. Whatever it is, it is all right. What is essential for us is to learn to relate to it, to actually relate to it, in this very moment, without grasping, without aversion, and without delusion. That is what our work is. To be aware of everything, the good feelings and the bad feelings, and the hard times and the easy times, without reaction. This is very powerful and it's very important. Sometimes people somehow trivialize this as though it were some kind of consolation prize. You know, like I really can't get anything fantastic happening, so you know, I'll have to try to be aware of what actually is happening. Why can't we believe it? That every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. This quality, being very present in this very moment, without the greed and without the hatred and without the delusion that are part of our conditioning, is both the path and the goal of the practice. And so it is very, very important. At one point, in an interview with Sayadaw Upandita, he said to me, Do you believe what the Buddha taught, that every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom? 
And I said, oh, yes, I really believe it. And he said, don't you think it might be better to actually realize it more than just believe it? And I said, oh, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what it's about. It's very important to understand this and to bring it to life, not just to think about it or think it's a good idea or even to revere or respect it as an idea, to bring it to life, to actualize it, to realize it in every moment. It's one meaning of Nibbana. The other meaning has to do with going beyond conditioned existence altogether. If you think for a moment of a wheel, the image of a wheel, a wheel is joined along its circumference just like a chain would be. If we arrange this chain in a circle, all these different links going around the circumference. And it also has an internal structure of mutually supporting elements, and that's the spokes. Each point of the rim of the wheel is connected to the structure as a whole because of the links that go around the circumference. And the wheel is also unified by this entire network of internal relationships. Everything in our conditioned existence, the world of duality, of knowing an object, the body and the mind, is like being within that wheel. Every element of this reality is interrelated. To be free of it, we have to go completely beyond it, completely outside of samsara or conditioned existence, conditioned relations. It's not a question of going from the circumference to the inner part, which is also mutually dependent, or going from the inner part to the further reaches of consciousness or knowing, the further reaches of the wheel. It is a question of going beyond it altogether, beyond this dependency, beyond this relationship. This is Nibbana as the unconditioned the inner experience of Nibbana is incomprehensible and inexpressible. But just as we can know of the wind from sensing or seeing, experiencing its effects, without ever seeing the wind itself, in just that way we can understand something, a little bit, of this Nibbanic state. The Buddha said, O bhikkhus, there is the unborn, the ungrown, and the unconditioned. Here the four elements of earth, air, water, and fire have no place. The notions of length and breath, the subtle and the gross, good and evil, name and form, are altogether destroyed. Neither this world nor the other, nor coming, going, or standing, neither death nor birth, nor sense objects are to be found here. Nibbana, in this sense, is not a state that's experienced through the six senses of the body or the mind. As long as there is knowing an object, that reality is within the law of change and conditionality. The bliss of Nibbana is not sensual, it's not sensate in that way. There have been arguments about the nature of Nibbana ever since the time of the Buddha. There's a story once about Sariputra, who at the time was the abbot of the monastery, going around 
saying out loud over and over again, oh, the bliss of Nibbana, the bliss of Nibbana. One of the bhikkhus said to him at one point, well, if there's no sensation in Nibbana, how can there be bliss? Saraputra replied, my friend, it is precisely because there is no sensation in Nibbana that it is bliss. It's like having a day off. It's like having a moment off. It's a moment off from this incessant, constant seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and smelling and thinking over and over and over again. It's a day off from the tedium of that, from the pressure of that, from the constant change of that. 2,500 years later, this same debate goes on. At one point, Manindra was very fond of going around saying, there's no pizza in Nibbana, are you still interested in it? It's a good question. Because the peace to be found in Nibbana, or the bliss to be found in Nibbana, is quite distinct and separate from sensual happiness in the six senses, including the mind. In fact, it occurs upon the cessation of mind and matter. It's the peace of the extinction of suffering. It's independent of contact with any of the six sense objects. And in fact, it arises just because there is no contact with any of the six sense objects. It's very puzzling for us, particularly for us, from this very materialistic culture, to understand a kind of happiness that arises when there is no experience at all. We have so much flexibility and freedom in our society that basically what has happened is that we've become experience junkies. We want this and we want that and we want that and we can get it. We can gratify so many of our desires. But no matter what we get, it's never enough because it doesn't last. And so the search for new experiences goes on and on. We look for new sexual experiences and intellectual experiences and cosmic experiences over and over again. And it gets more extreme all the time. If we look at our society at this point in time, what we see is people being willing to destroy their bodies and destroy their minds and destroy their loving relationships, destroy their lives for a new experience. What we see is a basic human tendency or human pattern taken to an incredible extreme. From the perspective that happiness arises from sensation, from feeling, the Nibbana seems some horrible kind of thing. It seems like actually a sort of secret death, something just terrible. And people become very frightened at this idea of annihilation. The word Nibbana actually means extinction, but it's the extinction of suffering, of greed, of hatred, and of delusion, not of a self that is hanging out inside of us, that we've been able to rely on, and that continually shows us a good time, and then is being sent off or cast off into this eternal nothingness forever. The Buddha pointed out that this self never existed to begin with, that this life is like a magic show. It's like a dream. To come out of the dream and to touch Nibbana is to awaken to the only true unchanging reality there ever has been. 
to come out of the dream into reality. It's the touching of Nibbana. It means to extinguish, like we extinguish a lamp or a flame. But the only thing that gets extinguished is suffering, not this precious, reliable self. To come to this, this kind of extinction, which is liberation, this relinquishing, which is liberation, means to see through the illusory nature of our attachments and our self-ideas, to know deep in our hearts and to the bottom of our hearts the changing nature of our world and its unsatisfactoriness and its essencelessness, its insubstantiality. If we can't do that, if we can't absorb that and feel that, know that deeply, fully, we cannot take that leap into the unknown, into the mystery, into that which lies beyond our conditioned reality. This is why, even when the practice is very painful, it's often considered to be very good. Because what we are doing through the clear and honest and open experience of that pain is gathering momentum for that leap, for that incredible willingness to let go of everything we have known and to go beyond. The unembellished version of me is mind and matter. Mind and matter, or nama rupa in Pali, is like a garment that has three holes in it. And because of these three holes, it's defective, or it's incomplete, it's unsatisfying. And so we put it down. We don't throw it away or rip it up because we hate it or we fear it or we condemn it or we want to degrade it. It's nothing like that. We put it down because we see its incompleteness. And we realize that because of its incompleteness, we do not need it. We do not need to hold on to it anymore. These three holes are impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and essencelessness in this garment of the body and the mind. Someone once asked the Buddha, of what purpose is Nibbana? And the Buddha said that that question was beside the point. One lives the holy life with Nibbana as its final plunge into liberation, as its goal, as its ultimate end. When Joseph and I were first talking about building a house, this architect we were working with said something quite incredible. He said, you have to look at that piece of land and start experiencing it as being incomplete and understand that the house will actually complete it. It's in just that way. Our lives are incomplete. We do not need to condemn this or condemn ourselves or our lives, but to understand that something in us longs for completion. We long to see the fulfillment of our lives, which is beyond what we have already known. This is the nibbanic state. Somewhere in each one of us, we long for this, and we understand that it would be the completion of our lives. It is a very unusual and extraordinary kind of happiness. Upandita uses the example of a multimillionaire who sounds asleep in very deep, peaceful sleep. 
The chef of this person has prepared a meal. He gets quite impatient. He goes upstairs and shakes the person in the bed to wake them up so they can eat the meal. Is it very likely that that millionaire is going to leap up in appreciation, having their beautiful, deep, sound sleep interrupted, and start to eat? When they're asleep, he or she is oblivious to their surroundings. They could be in the most beautiful room, and it doesn't matter. Even if there's beautiful music playing, they're not hearing it. Even if the bed is comfortable and luxurious, they're not feeling it. There's a certain sort of happiness in that very deep, profound, quiet sleep, which is not connected to sense objects, to seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling. Even though it's difficult to describe, it's not something that we can deny. And this is like Nibbana. It cannot be denied, nor can it be described. Our deductive reasoning tells us that the absence of these irritants these impingements of constantly knowing and knowing and knowing either a sight or a sound or whatever. The absence of that is very great happiness. Not that sleep and Nibbana can be perfectly equated because they're not really the same. But there's some element that can allow us to understand why it can be a desirable state. Because when we look at our experience honestly and directly, we see that we cannot bear for things to go on and on and on. Who can watch the same movie over and over and over and over again without wanting a break, without wanting some rest, a pause? Who can listen to a very sweet sound that never stops, it just comes and comes and comes and comes? We need to take a rest. And this way we can begin to understand a happiness that is beyond feeling. Nibbana is talked about as having four characteristics. The first of these is that it's known by the Buddha through the power of his own awareness after fulfilling the ten perfections of generosity and morality and wisdom and honesty and his different qualities. And this is the same for all of us. It is experienced through the power of one's own awareness after fulfilling these perfections, these forces of purity. Second is that it's a state of peace without any anxiety, without any worry, without any grief or sorrow. The word in Pali that is usually translated as anxiety actually means division or split. It's that which is split rather than that which is completely whole and together. State of Nibbana is devoid completely of defilement. It's not mixed with that stream of greed and hatred and delusion and jealousy and envy and guilt that we experience so frequently. It's unblemished or untarnished in that way. And then finally, it is our safe haven. It is our refuge, free from all danger without any element of danger at all. The essence of our lives can be summed up in the phrase, this being, that comes to be. In there being this, there is that. 
It's the law of conditionality or cause and effect. The happening of something produces a locus or a context in which something else can happen. It's not necessarily a one-dimensional causal relationship. It's quite multidimensional. An analogy is given in the text of the tides coming, infecting the water level in the ocean, and then in the rivers, and then, then in the smaller streams. When with the tide the great ocean swells, then the river swells. And when the river swells, the smaller rivers in the delta will swell. When the ocean ebbs, the rivers will ebb, and smaller rivers will ebb. The dynamics of the moon's gravitational influence upon earthly bodies of water is that the waters, except in very rare instances, will act in concord. With the arising of one thing, there is the arising of another thing, which is linked to it, which is conditioned by it. Whether it's seen as sequential or concurrent, or both, it doesn't really matter. All the elements of our existence, of this mind and this body, of our internal world, of our external world, are interdependent in this way. With the arising of ignorance, there's the arising of sankhara, which means that which is created, that which is compounded, or formations. As one definition, it can be seen as the mental verbal or physical action which carves out a karmic residue. It's carving out action. With the arising of this, these mental formations, this carving out, arises the world as we know it, the entire world as we know it, of consciousness and the six sense doors, the body and the mind. This consciousness there's mind and matter, there's the six sense doors, and arising out of that is contact with sights, sounds, smells, and so on. Arising out of that is feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality. Arising out of that, often, there is craving and then clinging and then becoming this urge to continually experience. Out of becoming arises birth. From birth there comes death. There's always death from birth. And there's sorrow, there's unhappiness, and there's grief. This is the cycle of our lives. This is the chain of conditioned existence. And there are many places to break this chain and to go beyond this reality, to touch the nibbanic state. With the cessation of ignorance rather than its arising, there is the cessation of mental formations and of consciousness and so on. The end of suffering, the end of grief, the end of sorrow, or Nibbana. With the cessation of craving, even with all the feeling, the world as we know it, and the pleasantness or the unpleasantness or the neutrality, 
If we don't take that next step into craving, then there is freedom, there is liberation. We've broken the chain. Nibbana is called the uncreated, the uncompounded, the uncaused. It's the unconditioned because it stands outside of this conditioned state of knowing an object, of impermanence and suffering. It's the unborn or the undying with no arising, no passing, no coming, and no going. The question often comes up, if it is uncreated, then how do we get it? It arises, there's a silent, wordless opening to this state, born out of an intuitive insight into impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and egolessness or essencelessness. Having been through often great elation and awe at the wondrousness of this existence, seeing truly what a miracle this existence is, and then having been through sometimes very great fear and misery at the same existence, looking at the same existence, seeing its unreliability, seeing how dangerous it is, never being able to rely on anything, never being able to count on anything and not have it change. We go through the elation, we go through the fear and the misery and the sorrow. And having taken this entire journey, the mind then settles into a perfect state of equanimity, of poise or of balance. There is no ignorance, there are no karmic formations, there is no karma, karmic residue being created, there is no craving, and there is no yearning. There is not even yearning for the next breath. It's a state of perfect balance of mind where it literally does not matter if you live or die because there is no wanting at all, not even for the next breath, not even for the next moment of existence or of becoming. When there's not that slight, even the slightest, slightest impulse towards becoming, when there is truly just being, simply being, at that moment of consciousness, the consciousness is not that slight, even the slightest, slightest impulse towards becoming, when there is truly just being, simply being, at that moment of consciousness, the consciousness leaps forward and it alights upon Nibbana. This one moment of cessation of all formations of the world as we know it, of ignorance and karma and craving, is the first direct experience of Nibbana. In this tradition, we talk about four times that this happens, this leap, this opening into that which is beyond. Each time that it happens, certain latent tendencies that we have are dispelled, and there's a radical transformation of the makeup of the mind. The first time that this happens 
it extinguishes or blows out, is a literal translation, it blows out belief in a personal self, in a permanent self. It blows out doubt because one has experienced the truth for oneself. We don't have to doubt and we also don't have to rely on anybody else to tell us what is true. And it also blows out or extinguishes a belief in incorrect means to experience freedom. Again, because one has walked the path for oneself. One understands what the components were, creating that very incredible balance of mind. And we've seen it for ourselves. It's also taught that this one moment, this first moment of breaking through to the unconditioned has the effect, karmically, in terms of rebirth, of closing the doors to lower realms. The experience of Nibbana, or the touching of Nibbana, transfigures the workings of the mind, so that there no longer remains any condition or cause for the generation of certain states, like doubt or belief in a permanent self or wrong belief in a means towards freedom, or the kinds of actions that create the karma that leads to that rebirth. The second time we have that experience, it attenuates greed and hatred. The third time eliminates greed and hatred. And then the fourth time, the latent stores of all remaining defilements are abandoned. The ground and the condition for the arising of the feeling of mental pain is removed. Following this moment, this touching of the unconditioned normal consciousness, which is knowing an object and feeling, re-arises with the exception of the factors that have been blown out, they've been blown away. So we have the example of the Buddha, who taught for 40 years after his enlightenment. He didn't disappear or has something really, you know, untoward happened to him. Didn't melt away under the Bodhi tree. He wandered throughout India. He extended profound and extraordinary love and compassion towards beings. He established a tradition. He established a monastic order. People often ask, what happens to a fully enlightened being? someone who has experienced all four of these, these times, these moments, at their death. In fact, the answer to that is incomprehensible. The Buddha said that there were no words in our vocabulary could, which could express that state. The elements that lead to a conditioned existence, subject to change, subject to birth and death and to sorrow, have been put to rest. And there's a chant that, as you read the text, monks and the nuns chant at the moment of their full enlightenment. They say, destroyed is birth, lived is the holy way of life, done is what had to be done. It must be an incredible moment to be able to say, done is what had to be done. The path can be viewed in this way, that certain mental factors become developed to a very powerful degree, 
and then come into balance. These are factors of morality, of right speech and action and livelihood. They're factors of concentration and energy and mindfulness. And they're factors of correct thought and correct understanding. When all eight of these arise to this very powerful degree and are brought into balance, then their only function is to direct the mind towards Nibbana. This is the Eightfold Path, right speech and action and livelihood, concentration, energy and mindfulness, right thought, right understanding. Whether we think about it or not, and whether we want it or not, this is what the path culminates in, in perfect freedom. Not because we're trying to lead it that way, but because that is its very nature. When those eight factors come together and come into balance in a very powerful way, that is what happens. It's also taught that every moment of mindfulness brings together all elements of the Eightfold Path. In every single moment we are mindful, we are fulfilling or actualizing every single one of these eight factors. And that is an incredible statement. Every moment of mindfulness brings together all eight of these factors. This leads to Nibbana and it exemplifies Nibbana in its perfect freedom right here and now. So the Buddha said that it was better to live one moment in mindfulness than a hundred years in ignorance. So look back over your day today and think about, even if it was just a few moments, when you felt that you were mindful. And please recognize that that is a very powerful thing. There's a lot to be grateful for to be able to bring this to life, even for a few moments. It's not that we can say that the path produces freedom or produces enlightenment or Nibbana because Nibbana is not produced or conditioned, but rather the path brings us to it. It's just like we may get to a mountain along a path, but the path doesn't create the mountain. We use the path to get there. The Buddha said that within this fathom-long sentient body itself, I postulate the world, the arising of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. Or in another rendition, he said, I postulate suffering the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering within this body. There's the entire universe. It's arising. It's ceasing. And the path leading to its ceasing. What this means is that whatever our experience is right now is our path. That we do not have to look outside of it for our realization. It is right here and now, within this body. We can experience everything. 
we can see the secret of life, the reality of things as they are. When the secrets are discovered, all of the forces which feverishly in our lives produce the, continu the continuity, really, of illusion, the conditions of illusion, they become dispelled. All of these forces that come together and that are so reinforced in our world to be forgetful, to be asleep, to not see clearly, they break apart, they become dispelled. Whatever our experience is right here and now is our path. The Buddha's talked about as being the great physician, the great healer. All those elements which are split in that division within us, producing that sense of anxiety, of not being at rest with ourselves, not being at peace with ourselves, those elements are brought together, they're united, and we're made whole. All of those elements in our lives that are productive of very great suffering, not understanding how to live, not understanding how to care for ourselves and care for others, these elements are dispelled and we become healed. And all of the elements in our lives that do not illuminate a path for us, that have us confused and bewildered about what choices to make and what courses of action to do, how to grow, how to become free. All of those forces are conquered or vanquished. And we can see clearly from one moment to the next that this is our path. This is what we treasure, this quality of mindfulness, of being awake, no matter what is happening. Because of that, we can come to understand that we can be free in this very life and in this very moment. That as we cease to nourish ignorance and we see beyond craving, and we have some sense of the kind of happiness which can lie beyond the world of duality, of having and getting and holding on, then we can truly treasure each moment and use each moment as a vehicle, as a time for putting this into action. I'd like to close with a quote from the Buddha, which he says, when greed, hatred, and delusion are abandoned, when neither aims at one's own harm, nor at the harm of others, nor at the harm of both, and one will not suffer pain and grief in one's mind. In that sense is Nibbana visible here and now. If one experiences the complete elimination of greed, the complete elimination of hatred, 
the complete elimination of delusion. In that sense is Nibbana visible here and now, of immediate result, inviting to come and see, onward leading to be directly experienced by the wise. This was always the Buddha's promise to us, and this is our heritage, that it is inviting to come and see, that we can see it for ourselves. It's not something that needs to be argued about or defended or attacked. It's something that is held up like a beacon, like a possibility in this world. And that each of us as individuals has this opportunity and this responsibility, really, to come and see for ourselves. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.